Hey everybody, welcome back to the big show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, episode, what episode are we on? 53. This is episode 53, and we are your hosts, Christopher Gillespie. Excuse me, this is episode 54. And I am Donovan Riley. Fifty-four uh, episodes in, and we are a well-oiled machine of dysfunction. There you go. Fifty-four. <laughs> fifty-four. Episode fifty-four. Season two, if you want. I don't know. There we go. I like it. John Mason Neal, born eighteen eighteen, died eighteen sixty-six. John Mason Neal was born on January twenty-fourth, eighteen eighteen, in London, the son of the Reverend Cornelius Neal, a man of considerable learning. His father died in 1823, and Neal's education continued under his gifted mother's direction. Later, he attended Sherborne Grammar School, and after that was a private pupil, first of the Reverend William Russell, rector of Shepperton, and then of Professor Chalice. In 1836, he obtained a scholarship in Trinity College, Cambridge, where he was considered the best student in his class. He graduated as B.A. in 1840, continued as a fellow at Downing College, and graduated as M.A. in 1845. Neil did not graduate with more than ordinary degrees, for he had the greatest antipathy to mathematics, proficiency in which was a prerequisite for classical honors. However, he did win many honors and prizes while at college. There, too, he identified himself with the church movement, becoming a founder of the quote-unquote ecclesiological, or as it was commonly called, the Cambridge Camden Society. Neil was ordained deacon in 1841 and priest in the following year. In the latter year, he married Miss Sarah Norman Webster, the daughter of an evangelical clergyman. In 1843, Neil was presented with a small incumbency of Crawley, Sussex. Because of his bad lungs, he was obliged to go to Madeira as the only chance of saving his life. Hmm. He stayed there until the summer of 1844. In 1846, he was presented by Lord Delaware with the wardenship of Sackville College, East Grinstead. Here, in quiet retreat, he devoted himself to literary work, to the advancement of the great church revival and to the sisterhood of St. Margaret's, which he founded with Miss S.A. Green. Other institutions gradually arose in connection with this sisterhood of St. Margaret's vis-a-vis an orphanage, a middle-class school for girls, and a house at Aldershot for the reformation of fallen women. The blessings which the East Grinstead sisters brought to thousands of sick and suffering cannot be counted. Dr. Neal met with many difficulties and great opposition from the outside, which on one occasion, if not more, culminated in actual violence. (laughs) His character, however, was a happy mixture of gentleness and firmness, and he therefore lived down all opposition. His last public act was to lay the foundation of a new convent for the sisters on July 20, 1865. Neal took sick the following spring, and after five months of acute suffering, died August 1, 1866. One of his traits must not pass unnoticed. His charity, which was unbounded. He was an industrious and voluminous writer of prose and verse. His prose works include commentary on the Psalms, 
the history of the Holy Eastern Church, the primitive liturgies of St. Mark, St. Clement, St. James, St. Chrysostom, and St. Basil. His original poetical works include Hymns for Children, 1842, Hymns for the Young, 1844, Songs and Ballads for the People, 1844. As a translator, Neil, Neil's success was preeminent. To him, more than to anyone else, we owe some of the most successful translations from the classical languages. Neil had all the qualifications of a good translator, an excellent knowledge of the classics and medieval Latin, and an exquisite ear for melody and spiritedness. From the Latin, Dr. Neil translated hymns which appear in 1851 under the title Medieval Hymns and Sequences, and in 1852 to 1854, Hymnal Noted. These two were followed by hymns, chiefly medieval, on the joys and glories of paradise, 1865, hymns of the Eastern Church, 1862, and many translations from the Greek, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, A Great and Mighty Wonder, Of the Father's Love Begotten, To the Name of Our Salvation, The Star Proclaims the King is Here, All Glory, Laud, and Honor, The Royal Banners Forward Go, Come, ye faithful, raise the strain. The day of resurrection, ye sons and daughters of the king, stars of the morning so gloriously bright. Around the throne of God a band, draw nigh and take the body of the Lord. And wilt thou pardon the Lord? Oh, and wilt thou pardon, excuse me, Lord, blessed Savior, who has taught me? Brief life is here our portion. Christ, thou art the sure foundation. Art thou weary? Art thou troubled? The day is past and over. O Trinity, most blessed light. The world is very evil. (laughs) Jerusalem, the golden. For thee, O dear, dear country. O Lord of hosts, whose glory fills. And today on the podcast, (laughs) we will be looking at... (laughs) Sing My Tongue, The Glorious Battle, hymn number 454 in the Lutheran Service Book. So this uh, is available for you to listen to on the recent Higher Things CD, All Glory, what does we call that CD? Uh, Glory Be to Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can go listen to, you know, Lutheran youth singing this. But I I was also interested in uh, John Mason Neal because I saw yesterday we celebrated the Transfiguration. Uh, Incidentally, he died uh, on the day of Transfiguration. Uh, 7th of August, uh, as it's celebrated in the Anglican Church. And uh, so his commemoration is on the 8th of August, along with Catherine Winkworth, who has yes. a fair number of translations in our hymnal as well, from German hymns That's mostly, correct. right? Yes. Um, anyway, what's interesting is that of all the, what, five or six transfiguration hymns that are in Lutheran service book, mm-hmm. is it even five? One, two, three, four, five. Two of them uh, are translated by him. There you go. And uh, the first is uh, Wondrous Type of Vision Fair, which was the hymn of the day, and then Alleluia, Song of Gladness, which is the last hymn. What's interesting about the hymns that he translated, whether they were from East or West or uh, where else, from the Russians or from the Syrians, they translated from mm-hmm. all over the place. Uh, it seems like the hymns that he's attached to are the ones that are attached to uh, the church calendar, to the to the liturgical year, right? That's correct. Right? Yeah. So that so he's got these hymns for transfiguration. He's got these Christmas hymns. He's got the O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which, right, which is the week before, mm-hmm. or what is it, 10 days before Christmas, right? Correct. Um, so all these hymns that are very 
we would say, I mean, liturgical, right? They, they fit the church calendar more so than mm-hmm. just like generic praise hymns or something like that. All glory, laud, and honor is, is the opening hymn for the procession on uh, Palm Sunday, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So it seems to be that that's, that's really what he's attached to. And I think it makes sense mm-hmm. because he was um, connected to John Henry Newman, uh, who was very much about, I don't know, the Roman Catholicization of the Anglican Church. Uh, right. So there, there's that, that order of ladies that he put together, right? Society of St. Mm-hmm. Margaret, uh, but also then really connected to what they called high church, right? Uh, sympathies. No, it's, it's his biography is very interesting in the sense that, as you pointed out, he is Anglican, mm-hmm. and yet his influence is even biographically abound uh, from other sources, right? Not just the Anglican Communion, the Sisterhood of Saint Margaret's, orphanages, middle class schools for girls, Reformation House for fallen women. These are typical of, let's say, the Methodist movement within mm-hmm. uh, British society. For a shirt, and it's a it's a benchmark, or how you say it, a bookmark. And also, too, this hymn that we'll look at today, "Sing My Tongue the Glorious Battle," was originally written by Venantius Honorius Fortunatus, who was running around the church from about five thirty to six hundred and nine A.D., and then updated by J- John Mason Neal. So then, again, a, not only a translator of hymns, but also a historian of hymnody. I think we we've talked about. In the last episode, how you know, there wasn't a lot of congregational singing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So what he does here is he's taking a chant that was probably uh, sung, you know, by a choir, right? Yes, or right. a cantor of some sort, and and he makes it a congregational song, right? Which is also unique, then. which is yeah, very unique for this time, especially in the 1800s when you have a movement away from congregational singing mm-hmm. toward hymns that are more geared toward the individual in relation to God. So let's dive into the hymn again, 554 in your Lutheran service book. Sing my tongue, the glorious battle. Sing my tongue, the glorious battle. Sing the ending of the fray. Now above the cross, the trophy. Sound the loud triumphant lay. Tell how Christ, the world's redeemer, as a victim won the day. Hmm. So already at the very opening stanza, then we need to reorient ourselves to what it means to win a battle, <laughs> because as one theologian draws out, there is there are there are two kinds of power when we speak about the kingdom, about salvation, matters of justification, or rather, more specifically, the two kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And in the earthly kingdom, the kingdom on the left (laughs) man it really is early in the week for me Uh, this is the earthly kingdom this is power in this context is right-handed power as we call it so it's the left-handed kingdom but it's right-handed power that is this is this is force this is physical exertion um brought to bear on another person or another thing this is guns and bombs and tanks this is arguments and debates threats of violence peace through superior firepower and such it is an active kind of force. In the kingdom on the right, which is left-handed power, confusingly, this is passive power. This is Jesus crucified for mm-hmm. the sin of the world. Yeah. This is Jesus saying to Pilate, if I snapped my fingers, 
in essence. An entire army of heaven would descend upon this world and destroy it with fire. All of the angels in heaven stand at the ready to attack at the slightest, slightest sign from me. Mm. And therefore, as I can't remember who said it, but essentially in, in, in God's way of power, the loser always wins. Yeah, I mean, he, he wins the victory by being the victim. Right, right. Which the hymn, which the hymn says, it redeems the world. Which I think is really gets to the root of why Paul calls the cross a scandal, mm, yeah. a stumbling block, a death trap. Actually, literally, a scandal on is a death trap. That it doesn't make any sense, <laughs> and there's nothing that we can see by looking at the cross that will tip us off that there's some sort of unearthly power at work here. Because you have the cry of dereliction, you have his shame, you have the crowds walking by and spitting and cursing at him and saying, if he could save others, why can't he save himself? Mm-hmm. Even his disciples fleeing from him. That when you lay the scene out, there's nothing to indicate to us that anything about Jesus' crucifixion is going to be any sort of victory over anything. Yeah. I mean, it looks to be the end, but it's actually the end. Uh, of the warfare, right? Right, right. If we were to depict Jesus crucified in a right-handed power sort of way, you can go on uh, on the internet and do this search, but it's essentially the the Jesus who br- is breaking the cross in half as he rips <laughs> his arms off, and yeah. he's, what, six foot eight, 260-pound Teutonic Jesus <laughs> with an eight pack. That is how the world would conceive of Jesus as the Savior who wins a victory over sin, death, and hell. Yeah. He is a Viking warrior, essentially, a Teutonic knight. He's noble, courageous, brave, all of those things that you would want in a a great warrior. Kind of go watch 300 or something. (laughs) Versus this, which is he is nailed naked for all the world to see. And he is forsaken by his own disciples for the most part. He is forsaken by his people and he is forsaken by God. Yeah, And so... What exactly, where is the force that's brought to bear on these matters of ultimate importance? Where is the, uh, or what? what is the meaning of the expression, now above the cross, the trophy? What mm. What is he getting at there? That is interesting, isn't it? That's what I wondered too. I mean, is, it, is it referring to his body, which is what I think it, it must is. be, right? Mm-hmm. It's got to be. I mean, his body is the trophy. Right. Uh, uh, well, one of what Satan thinks is the victory, right? Yeah, it's the old uh, atonement image of Jesus, the cross is a hook and Jesus is the bait. Yeah. Vanquishing death by dying, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dr. Luther calls Jesus the big D death of little D death. There you go. This is a summary, by the way, uh, as we're not surprised. Uh, not yes. all the stanzas get translated. Um, I think they were in Neil's original. I haven't gone to dig that up, but um, it's quite a bit longer, of course, and uh, <laughs> being a Latin chant. So... Uh, We've got How many it. stanzas is the original? Oh, uh, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven kids. Look at that. Eleven hmm. stanzas. Uh, it has a okay. whole it has a whole nother thread, narrative thread that's not present mm. in in, okay. in this version, which okay. we can talk about later. So back to the hymn, stanza two. Tell how when at length the fullness of the appointed time was come. He, the word, was born of woman, left for us his father's home, blazed the path of true obedience, shone as light amidst the gloom. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, he needed imagery. 
Right. And, and John 19, verse 30 in the lower right-hand corner as one of the biblical citations. Right. His uh, humiliation, being born uh, as man, right? Of Correct. Uh, the, the eternal word of God that made all things becomes creature, right? Right. And for further reference, Psalm 98, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah 52, verses 9 and 10, and Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, mm-hmm. along with John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 30. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I, specifically, I noted Isaiah 52, Galatians 4, and John 19 there. Good, solid Lutheran stuff from this Anglican. <laughs> you know, isn't that interesting how we as Lutherans just took over certain books of the Bible and claimed them as our own? <laughs> we just pitched a flag right on top of them. Yeah, that's right. Like you can have James and other things, but <laughs> Romans, Galatians, John, those are ours. Yeah. yeah. Along with the Psalms and Isaiah and Genesis. Right, right. What's this uh, blaze the path of true obedience? What do you think he's getting at there? That he is completely obedient to the law and the will of God. Mm-hmm. in our place to his father yeah <clears throat> to his father's will and again johannine obviously but this is something that i make an important point of reflection and teaching for confirmation <clears throat> excuse me is that we as lutherans don't read the 10 commandments in one way only we read them in two ways that is the first time we read them we read them as words directed toward the old adam do this and you will live don't do this and you will die mm-hmm. thou shalt thou shalt not but then we read them again in relation to christ and his perfect obedience to the father's will as those commandments which jesus perfectly fulfills keeps for us in our place so that in the power of jesus's resurrection when the father looks at us he sees his son and therefore jesus is perfectly obedient to the commands in such a way as if we ourselves were perfectly obedient to them which mm-hmm. is why Paul in Romans 3.31 points out that really faith then, faith in Christ, fulfills the whole law. It's all credited, all of his work is credited to us through faith. Right, right. And so, so forth, or such and so forth, then his obedience is also credited to us through faith. He did what none of us could do. Right, right. right. By, could, can, will. Can, will, yeah, whatever. Um, but by his will... Um, he goes to death, right? Right, right. Becomes the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world, mm-hmm. right? And uh, is, is crucified. Uh, and then, you know, the old Latin image of this is that, that the cross is the altar of God, right? Yes, absolutely. That actually came up in my sermon yesterday, mm-hmm. that God is both giver and gift in all of the lambs sacrificed on all of the altars of Israel. <laughs> but then once and for all, he is the lamb who is slaughtered on the cross one time for all time for all people. And so in the transfiguration text, it's not as if there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. <laughs> as if those sacrifices like did not take away sin. Uh, wait right. a minute, actually. Right. They did promise that. God said right. they would. They did. They just didn't forever and for all time and for all people, right? Right. Right, exactly. And so it's uh, to the point of the transfiguration text, which was yesterday as of this recording, the... Temptation, as always with this, is to preach us down into the, back down off the mountain to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is the pious turn, the false piety, versus actually what this is establishing for us is who Jesus actually is, my beloved son with whom I'm all pleased listen to him, a reiteration of the baptismal mm-hmm, right. uh, narrative. But also then he immediately points his face toward Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. That's what he's all about. 
Right. And and for us to be transfigured or metamorphosed or <laughs> however you want to mm-hmm. say it, I mean, for us to be in glory, that is right. um, resurrected, right, requires him to go to the cross. That's how he does it. That's exactly right. In fact, since you brought up the word metamorphosis, it reminded me of this dichotomous imagery that if you want to read how the world might conceive of metamorphosis, read Franz Kafka's book, Metamorphosis. Mm-hmm about a man who wakes up as a bug. <laughs> and it's actually quite fascinating. Kafka is wonderful this way. Sounds delightful. Uh, and, and if you ever get a chance, I 100% recommend reading Franz Kafka, The Trial, because there is no greater, I don't think, exposition on natural law than The Trial. Mm. Uh, and there's actually a movie that was made, and it's actually a really good movie. And uh, so I rec- highly recommend both. But uh, Kafka really gets he gets human nature and he gets natural law. He really does get the law of nature and how it applies to us in society as we try and civilize the law in order to civilize or tame ourselves Mm. versus what we're discussing, this metamorphosis or transformative, this change, which it's a word I actually loathe, but for the sake of conversation here, um, that this is something that takes place in Christ, as you said, crucified. This is not something that happens to us, but rather... As I pointed out in a Kafkaesque sort of way, the the more we strive to, let's say, civilize ourselves, domesticate ourselves, tame ourselves, and bring ourselves in line with God's will according to the law, the further away we actually are. Yeah. The more condemned we actually are, as Paul points out. The purpose of the law was to increase the trespass. Yeah, what he did for us, what we can never, could never do right. for ourselves. That's the, that's the challenge is that, you know, more of the... Mm, more of the medieval, you know, Roman piety is that mm-hmm. that that he is that enabler, that spark, that yes. that takes something that's already inherent in you, a capacity mm-hmm. that you have, and and just kind of gets you over the hump, right? <laughs> yeah, he just he breathes his grace onto it, which inflames that fire, and then we have a burning heart for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Which, then, as a side note, that's what I find remarkable about this hymn, in a general sense, is that it was written in the sixth century obviously by a Mm non-Lutheran, and then translated and updated by a non-Lutheran. And yet the context is, we would argue, theologically very reformationally Lutheran. Well, that's not surprising. I mean, when we look at the our Lutheran confessions, for example, the defense, uh, like before Rome, is that we are in keeping with um, the church fathers, exactly. maybe, yeah. maybe not usually so much the medieval ones, <laughs> right. but certainly the early church and even the first, you know, first popes, you know, Leo will be referred Thank to you. or something like I'm, that. I'm glad you hit that one right over the back fence because that's what I was leading toward is that I think in especially the last two to 300 years in the United States and the Prussian immigration to this country in particular, we all of a sudden became Lutherans by branding rather than as you are as they argued at Augsburg we're not lutheran we're catholic right. and our catechism is a catholic ecumenical catechism and our hymnody is catholic and the what we do liturgically is catholic everything we do in fact we started studying the lord's prayer in the large catechism yesterday in adult bible study and that was one of the first things that people grasped onto here is that yes luther is reacting to late medieval prayer piety mm-hmm. But his argument, this is interesting because this goes along with the celebration of the Mass as it's written out by Melanchthon, right? We celebrate the Mass actually more zealously than mm-hmm, Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that because of the teaching of the Wittenberg theologians on prayer, where they're attacking and critiquing the late medieval prayer piety, especially of the monks and the nuns, the counter to them was, from their opponents, they're actually encouraging people not to pray anymore. 
And so Luther, in his introduction to the Lord's Prayer in the Catechism, has to argue, we're actually, are, we're actually teaching people to pray more by explaining to them biblically the true meaning and intent and goal and purpose of prayer. Yeah. And it's not oratio in the sense of coming before God to beg for what we need and hope he gives it to us, but rather on rufin in the sense of, I can actually go to God as my heavenly father and knowing I'm his dear child through baptism, I can actually have a conversation with my father who not only promises to hear me, but to answer me. Mm-hmm. And so Luther takes oratio and converts it into on rufin, which is, like I said, a posture of begging God for something versus I'm going to go to my dad and have a conversation with him. Yeah, and he really hits that uh, home with the, what, fourth petition, with the give us daily bread. It's like he gives daily bread to everyone, even without their prayers. So why do we pray? That we would receive it with thanksgiving, right? Exactly. And as dear children again. You know, what what parent does, as Jesus says, what parent doesn't, you know, give their child an egg when they ask for it? Do they give him a serpent? No. (laughs) Right, Right, exactly. Yeah. And that... At that at base, then, what prayer is and what hymnody is when it's actually great hymnody, it preaches Christ for you, is it's the new man in Christ with the Spirit putting the old man in Adam to death. Mm. That's what prayer is. You're you're praying against yourself, as Paul explains in Romans 8. It's the Holy Spirit who prays for us because we don't know how to pray as we ought to. Mm-hmm. But there's also a war that goes on, not just within the Christian, this battle against the Spirit, against prayer, against God being Father for us and us wanting to be God in God's place but also a war, obviously, between the two kingdoms, Mm. the earthly and the heavenly kingdoms. And we as Christians stand at the foot of the cross, which is where these two kingdoms overlap. And if if the weapon is the word of God, um, how how do we actually wield the weapon? But, I mean, here the word um, catechesis comes in, right? That we we echo back to God what he said to us, and that word is powerful, right? Right. That is what prayer is. It is to say back to God what he first says to us, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is why Jesus says, I command you to pray this way when you pray in Matthew. In Luke, it's, you should pray this way. But as my electrician pointed out, in electrician's manuals, it says you should turn off the electricity before you begin wiring a house. Now, that's not an actual invitation. (laughs) That's not a subjunctive. It should in the sense of, yeah, you really need to turn the electricity off before you wire a house. (laughs) And anybody who reads that instruction as a subjunctive of, well, I should, but it doesn't mean I have to. Mm -hmm. They only have to make that mistake once grammatically. And then they discover that should actually means, yeah, you really need to do this. So, so John Mason Neal, I mean, he's ecumenical in the best sense of the word, I think, where he, he's, he's recognizing that there's faithfulness um, present in the midst of error, I'm sure, in, in other traditions, whether East or West, Latin, Syrian, Russian. Uh, and he tries to bring out the best of them and, and bring them into um, the English you know, singing culture, which, which was there. That's a good way to say it, yeah. Yeah, the problem was... Uh, you mentioned before that there was an issue where he got uh, got beat up in, in the bio, times. and it was actually um, because they suspected him of being a spy for the Vatican. There you go. <laughs> See, he's too Roman Catholic. Ever heard that before? Oh, yeah. There we go. I was going to say, before social media, you had to actually go to the guy's house and beat him up physically. <laughs> you couldn't just do it online. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that, that, that whole... Um, guilty by association, or, or it's even worse than that. It's just name calling, right? They're just right. branding somebody um, as a heretic because of uh, a desire to uh, not to divide the church unnecessarily. I suppose is how you might say it. Well, he's. I'm sure his argument would be as it, and I say sure because this is 
what I've witnessed in every generation where this happens to someone, which is, but what is it saying? What does it confess? <laughs> you're looking at the you're looking at the author of the title and saying, oh, that's Roman Catholic, or oh, that's Eastern Orthodox, or oh, that's too Baptistic. Mm -hmm. But well, what's the content though? Yeah, does it confess Christ for you for the forgiveness of sins, or not? Yeah, and so the the comparison then to the Lutheran reformers, I think, is apt, right? Where they're they're doing the same. They're saying, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. Can you just evaluate what we're saying based on the words of what we're saying?" Yes, and, and or even if you like, compare them to the words of our our common fathers in the faith, right? Mm -hmm. Whoever that might be, uh, but. Uh, it was too political, probably, <laughs> right? To to take them at at face value. So. Well, and I wonder, going back to my earlier point too about branding, that there is this sense of iron sharpening iron when you are taking from other traditions mm. and having to test and filter, versus this closed system that evolve. You know, you evolve into a church body called Lutheran or Baptist or Anglican or whatever it may be, and within that closed system, it generates this institutional groupthink, becomes a hot house then for heresy. Because you're either in or you're out. You're either a company man or you're not. And that's really then what we judge you by is how Lutheran are you or how Baptist are you versus do you confess Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins? Yeah, and it especially comes out in pl uh, to play in regards to practices, right? They say, well, yes. that's, that's how we've done things. We've had confirmation right. forever. And yeah, they're right. I mean, in the, <laughs> yeah, in right. the, in the short history of particular congregation, sure. Uh, right. In the history of Lutheranism, actually, no, and, yeah. and or of the broad church, not in the way that you think, right? Mm -hmm. You know, as far as the bishop coming around and confirming uh, the youth, I mean, mm -hmm. it wasn't, and this eighth grade thing, that's very German, and it's very um, peculiar. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, but we said, well, that's how we've done it, and things were, so, and it's so easy if we all just kind of do the same thing. Eh, some truth right. to that, I suppose. But not asking the why question, you know? Well, why? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Back to the hymn, stanza three. Thus with 30 years accomplished, he went forth from Nazareth, destined, dedicated, willing. Did his work, met his death. Like a lamb, he humbly yielded on the cross his dying breath. And I think we've talked about this before, but this statement of humility not humiliation, but humility of humbleness is to be humble, literally translated means to be, to consider yourself of no importance. Mm -hmm. That is, I am not better than or less than anybody else, but rather I'm equal to everybody. So not only as the psalmist says, does God judge all people with equity, but when God becomes a man, when he is born in the flesh, he himself then judges himself to be equal to all men. He does not take up a position uh, as heroic warrior or religious guru or moral example for us to follow. He is just a rabbi from Nazareth. Yeah. No better or worse than any other man. One of the, one of the stanzas that uh, was omitted by Neil uh, really does push this point um, where, where it go, takes you to the manger. All within a lowly manger, low a tender baby lies. See the gentle virgin mother lull to sleep. His infant cries. Oh, wait, he's crying? Uh oh, anyway, <laughs> while the limbs, How dare you? while the limbs of God incarnate round with swath, uh, swathing bands, she ties. So, I mean, yes, he is absolutely like one of us, even crying. Look at that. And, Crazy. And the limbs that, that will, you know, upon, that will uh, bear the, bear God in Christ upon the cross are the, the, mm -hmm. the limbs that she wa you know, winds up with claws. <laughs> Correct. There at the manger. Beautiful. Mm. 
Back to the hymn, stanza four. Faithful cross, true sign of triumph. Be for all the noblest tree. None in foliage, none in blossom, none in fruit thine equal be. Symbol of the world's redemption for the weight that hung on thee. There you go. Cursed tree from Leviticus. Yeah. And this is connecting back to that uh, very, very early church, medieval even idea mm-hmm. of the uh, the tree of life and then the tree of the cross being at the same spot, right? Right, right. Irenaeus is really the first one that I know of reading who, he called it recapitulation. Mm. That is kaput, head, chief, first, yep. and re to go back. And so Irenaeus' argument against the Gnostics is God never does anything randomly. Nothing's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. So therefore, everything that occurs Old Testament-wise in the history of Israel occurs in the New Testament. And then Irenaeus goes about matching them up. <laughs> so think of it this way. Um, the tree of life, they they ate, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, excuse me. They, they ate of the fruit and it brought evil and death, right? And now on this tree, we eat of the fruit of that tree, which is Christ's body and blood, and we mm-hmm. receive life, forgiveness, right? Correct, correct. So, so that reversal, but also that that really direct coincidence. Uh, and then connected also to the place of the skull being the place of Adam's skull, right? Correct, yeah. right. First and second Adam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mary being the second Eve, and yes. Yeah, so that recapitulation. I like that word. That's nice. Yeah, fancy stuff. What else is in here? Oh, you know, and I wanted to talk about this too because we've been having this conversation uh, here at my church for a couple months now. I'm this is what I do is when I'm when I'm <laughs> when I'm thinking about possibly writing a book, I'll workshop it for mm-hmm. almost a year in Bible study yeah. and see what happens because I I tend to prefer to think out loud while I teach and have a conversation and, and field test it, so to speak, rather than sit alone and make notes. And it probably and, aggravates people a little bit because you. Uh, because it's a, a dance, right? You go back a little and bit. forth, and uh, a you, little bit. Like, That's why it's it's important to in, invite the why question and the conversation from the uh, the class, mm-hmm. right? And I think for them, it it at least the feedback I've received is it compels them to think rather than sit and listen to me talk. Mm. Because I, like I said, I'm workshopping these things, I'm reading these things, I'm exegeting, I'm bringing in these, you know, Luther or somebody, and asking, hey, this is what he says on prayer right here. Yeah. And why doesn't our prayer piety match up with what he is inculcating here in the large catechism, for example? Well, of course, historically, um, you know, how many people listen to Luther of his generation? <laughs> exactly. Very few. Yeah. Um, but this goes to the point, especially in the Old Testament and the piety of the Old Testament saints, such as Joshua, for example. Joshua is a warrior saint. And it seems, especially since the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution and the heavy influence of Reformed theology on American Christianity, especially Anabaptist theology, which is no military service. You can't even serve on a jury. You can't swear on a Bible. Wow. You can't hold public office. This this strain of theology that comes from the Anabaptists is such that it's influenced us in such a way that we only think of piety in a right-handed power sense, or a left-handed power sense, I mean, a passive power sense, that piety is entirely passive. And I bring this up in relation to loving your neighbor then Mm. Uh, and reading Luther on whether a Christian can or whether a soldier can be a Christian and then reading other articles and lectures of late about this topic that 
the Anabaptists kind of controlled the conversation too about just war theory in the early church. And the assertion that, well, the early church fathers, for example, were pacifists and they were completely against war and military service, where it turns out that really the primary sources, there's only three or four that are just repeated over and over again ah, yes. that were against this. Yeah. But by and large, even in the Bible, in the New Testament, such as Cornelius or the legionnaire who comes to Jesus, there's no condemnation of military service. And then you go to the Old Testament, there's even more explicit um, evidence that there's no condemnation of military service, even when it's a pagan like Naaman, yeah, who is the general of the Syrian, the entire Syrian army. Well, and how God uh, uses foreign uh, military leaders actually yes. to accomplish right, you know, His purpose, right. namely repentance. Right, right. He is the Lord of hosts, not just in a heavenly host sort of way. Mm. He is the Lord of armies. That's what that word means in Hebrew. Well, and I think, armies. I, I mean, I think to the passion story, you know, narrative that the, probably the most startling thing is it's the uh, centurion who says this, truly this man yes, is the right. son of God, right? Right. Not, not God the Father speaking at the cross, but now a Gentile centurion. Right, right a sinner at that. Mm. And really what comes out in the early church op- opposition to military service isn't the military service itself, it's the idolatry that comes with it. The worship, the Caesar worship, mm, the right. cult of Caesar, and so forth, or worshiping Mars, right? Or now, now we just call it nationalism, right? Or nationalism, exactly, a civic pride. But nonetheless, I think this is something that, like I said, we're having a conversation about here, primarily because I have veterans in my congregation, and I have a good relationship with local law enforcement, um, guards at the local courthouse, guards at the jail, at the prison, and specifically, though looking at the piety of the saints in the Old Testament, like I said, like Joshua or Naaman, who are soldiers, or Abraham, who is a warlord. He's a tribal chieftain, straight up. That's what, his, that's what he is. He's a tribal chieftain. So when there's fighting to be done, he goes out and he fights. One army, two armies, three armies, four armies, he doesn't care. This is his job. He's got to go out and he's got to rescue his nephew. Mm-hmm. But I think, and what really got me thinking on this, and I know it's a tangent, but it, I think it bears with the hymn itself. That's what got me thinking about it, is in my Jewish study Bible, the rabbis try to explain away all of Joshua as theological, grammatical, or literature, but that when God says to Jonah or jo- Joshua, go in and annihilate anyone who doesn't repent, that that's actually not real. Like that didn't actually happen historically. Joshua did not actually go in and wage war against the Canaanites to get the land. And that God didn't really annihilate them. To some degree, that's true, right? I mean, they actually didn't do what God had commanded. No, that and but that's named. I'm saying specifically in the Jewish Study Bible and the up, you know, in the modern version, they want to explain away all of it, like it was all like metaphor, or yes, it's all just a literary device. It's mm-hmm. a big metaphor for yeah. They had some skirmishes, but they just basically settled where there was nobody living there and set up base and wow. then kind of slowly assimilated into Canaanite society. Whereas I'm saying, no, I'm positive that based on what I know of history and tribalism, when God says annihilate them, he 100% means annihilate them. Because right. he just got done 40 years previously annihilating every firstborn male in Egypt. And that makes us uncomfortable, right? Super uncomfortable because it's a different use of power. It's that right-handed use of power by God, which upsets us. Because I think at root, what it does is it upsets us because we don't have any control over that. Well, and very much so here, we look at the cross and we say, well, one, we, as we talked about before, it looks like um, 
like it's the victory of sin, death, and the devil. Uh, mm-hmm. In reality, it's it's a different sort of victory. But also that right. that that the father would would actually purchase the victory through his son, but in such a way, right through suffering and right. through pain and right. through violence right. and bloodshed. I mean, it's uh, why why couldn't he have done it in a more peaceful way? Right. And even Jesus and, says, I, "I did not come on the earth to bring peace, but a sword." And you're like, "What? Right. What are you talking about?" <laughs> exactly. It's like, how can you say I've not, I haven't come to bring peace, but the sword? And again, a very concrete, real way, mm-hmm. not metaphorically, and yet die this passive death at the same time. Mm. And this also goes to the point, too, uh, in my morning readings, many people that I've been reading lately who have served in the military in World War II, Korea, or Vietnam, point out that America historically has a very Manichaean theology, the civil religious theology, which is they're evil, we're good. Ah, okay. And this gets us in a lot of trouble, not only socially, for example, the Civil War is a perfect example, but then internationally, when we enter into something like uh, the Cold War, and all of a sudden we're going to Vietnam and saying, well, they're evil and we're good. Therefore, we will win because good always triumphs over evil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And obviously in that situation, that is 100% not true. And 15 years after the fact, the truth came out about Vietnam and, and so forth. But... I think there's something to be said about that to the present tense, as you and I were talking before we went on air, that especially in local upper Midwestern congregations, that Manichaeism is alive and kicking. Oh, that polarity of good versus evil. Yeah, we are good and they are evil. And by we, I mean we as Christians, we as conservative Christians, we as conservative Republican Christians, we as conservative Republican white Christians, we conservative white Republican middle-class Christians. It Mm -hmm. becomes a categorical organization. Mm. It's not, and it's not just tribalism, but it's it's worse than that. Uh, what would you call it? Cult. Yeah, it's cultic. Yeah, it's very cultic in a negative sense. And so, this is why we're having this conversation. In my congregation is all of this to spin it out to say: Is your piety predicated on American civil religion and what you grew up hearing in the, especially amongst the boomers, or? Is our piety lacking because the language of the church and its theology has softened since the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, uh, as we see in the hymnody, mm-hmm. for example? And also then, is it possible, at least in a, at the congregational level, locally, is it possible to recapture and repent of a very weak, juvenile, in a negative sense, childish, not childlike, but childish piety that never questions God? never goes to him as a child goes to his father and says hey why are you doing this mm-hmm. or why is this happening to us or what did you do and have that conversation with god as i pointed out with luther's translation change from of oratio to unrufen yeah do do we have the piety of the old testament saints which is not only will i go up to god and and argue with god but i'm willing to go out and kill for god to protect my neighbor from this person who is bent on killing my neighbor. Yeah, and all the other aspects of, you know, parent-child relationship, like uh, lament, complaining. Right. You know, we look at the Old Testament example, and, you know, it's it's presented in a pretty negative light, right? Mm -hmm. But but only because we hear God's response to them, you know, to the complainers, as being like, don't you remember? But of course, that's what we all do as parents, right? It's like, are we there yet? Well, you yes, know exactly. we're going to be there. What do you want to do? I have to go about? to the bathroom. We just went to the bathroom. Right. So you can complain. That doesn't mean you're going to like the response, right? Correct. 
but, but exactly. You, but you, God is good. He's just not safe. <laughs> but you should complain so that you do have the opportunity from God's word to hear the response, right? Correct. And because that actually is what sets your heart and mind back, Correct. if you like, on course or back with him. As I point out time and again to my people, pastorally speaking, Jacob wrestling with God is a sign of faith, mm-hmm. not unbelief. And so many of my people were taught growing up that to argue with God, to wrestle with God's word, to doubt or question is a sign of unbelief. And it is. But that's half of that mm. simile. That's half the simile. Right. Yes, the old Adam wrestles with these things because he rebels. But the new man in Christ wrestles against the old Adam at the same time. Right. Not only is it is it spoken in disbelief, but it's also spoken um, for faith, right? Right, right. You know? It's, this is Dostoevsky's confession of faith. Essentially, I believe how my unbelief is Dostoevsky's confession. Mm-hmm. Is that I believe because I so desperately don't want to believe. Hmm. And I don't know necessarily if you've never been in that position before, if you can even uh, understand that. But I, I kind of get the feeling as a pastor, experientially speaking, that everybody's been there at least once. Yeah. If they haven't already, they will be. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't been there, go look in the mirror for a couple minutes and really ask yourself, aren't, aren't you really always there? You're just pushing that down and, and not wanting to confront it yeah. because you're afraid. You're afraid, essentially, because like a child who's afraid of being punished for telling the truth, you'd rather take the punishment for lying to yourself and others rather than tell the truth, confess, and, and hear the words, I died for that too. Yeah. I died for your unbelief. <laughs> We're good. I believed for you, speaking of the first commandment. I'm interested in uh, this last expression, stanza four. Um, right. Symbol of the world's redemption for the weight that hung on thee. Uh, that's not the language of the original. They don't use that word symbol. I'm trying to trying to imagine, I mean, what does he mean? Sign? Sign or symbol. I mean, we've talked about that right. in regards to, you know, Augustinian theology. Right. And right. it's usually translated as miracle, actually. <laughs> mm. The Greek word symbolon is usually translated as miracle, which is a terrible translation. Yeah. I mean, the original text doesn't seem to have any of that. It's it's something that points to something else, right? I mean, that's what symbol means or sign. It means something that points to something else. And I don't know that it actually does, right? Because Christ upon the cross, that is the full and complete atonement for sins, right? Right. right. That is the fullness of the image of God. Right. This is the glory of God revealed to man. Not not transfiguration, but the cross is the, the fullness right. of the glory. So, and as I'm constantly harping on, the danger in using the word symbol is we get into platonic ideas that Jesus points to a higher reality, mm. which as you just, I think I, I would argue you correctly point out, Jesus doesn't point to any higher reality than the fact that God dies <laughs> yeah. right there. Yeah. You can watch it. I mean, he, he predicts it uh, a number right. of times. Um, he's always, you know, no greater love than this. So when man laid down his life for his friends, he's always pointing this right. out that this is where, uh, this is what everything's been cul- being drawn to, culmination. And I was going to say, maybe, do you think maybe it's our frustration with the fact that death is just so banal and benign mm-hmm. that we want it to mean something more to us? So therefore, Jesus's death above all death must mean something more than just he died for us. He died for our sin. As if that's, again, as if that's just something not that important. Yeah, maybe. I, I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm, I'm thinking here is to suss this out. Um same thing, talking with combat vets and then going and watching um, GoPro cam videos of actual combat in Afghanistan, for example. 
and one of the things that I noted in conversation then is it's so undramatic. It's so banal, actually, that there's gunfire, there's shooting, and then all of a sudden someone, someone's hit, someone's hit. <laughs> and it just happens. And then everyone goes about uh, scrambling to rescue that person, pull them out of the line of fire, uh, uh, apply first aid, whatever it may be. But it's all so undramatic mm. in in its in its unfolding. And it's not the way that movies, I guess that's maybe one of my point is when you watch a war movie, it's always dramatic because there's music and it's, and it's, it's dramatized. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then when you watch the actual thing on the actual battlefield, it's so unremarkable and people die unremarkably. <laughs> they just get shot and they just die. They just stop moving. They don't necessarily fly backwards through the air 10 feet. They don't spin around in circles. They get hit and they just drop. No, they're I, walking forward and then they're just done. It's kind of uh, like uh, Anne will remark uh, is watching like birth experiences on TV. It's like they're always super dramatic and, mm -hmm. and they happen at the worst possible time. And it's like, have you actually been like around people right. giving birth? They, right. they generally actually give birth when they kind of want to, when they're ready. Right. Yeah, 100%. You know? Hey, I've got an appointment on Friday and I'm at 36 weeks. So could, could we just induce... Because I got a babysitter. Well, there's that. Kids for the no, but I mean, even if you go all <laughs> even if you go naturally, right? I mean, yeah, it just, absolutely. You know, like uh, you know, we we were predisposed, I guess, to evening deliveries. Yeah, things kind of calm down. Us You're, too. You know, yeah, yeah. And so it's just it's like, and then you watch on TV, and it's like, oh, her water broke. No surprise, right. et cetera. Yeah. Right. So we, I don't know. We don't want to over dramatize it. So I think maybe I have a point there with that. Well, and then that's my point. Then is that as a pastor reflecting on this, this has been helpful for me to have this conversation with combat vets about this matter because as a pastor, I, about two years ago or so, started to get concerned by the fact that I was so emotionally unmoved by death. Mm. I'm in the room with people who are breathing their last breath into my face. Everyone else is falling apart around me and I'm just looking at it and saying, yeah, he's dead. And now he is asleep in Christ waiting for the resurrection to happen. This is what happens to all of us. This is normal. And to the point now where I don't even actually have a mourning period after the fact anymore. Yeah, some of that is, I think, the necessity pastorally to be uh, empathetic and not sympathetic. Um, sure, and, stay detached. Well, and it's not detachment, but it is a detachment. But it, but it's also, you know, I mean, you're you're called to a, for a very specific purpose, and that, right. uh, you know, if anybody needs to keep it together, it really is you. Right, because everyone else is looking at you for direction. Well, and I think the biggest thing is that um, you and I have a confidence in the resurrection that does yes. actually quiet, you know, fears and right. sadness. You know, it it doesn't say we're not sad or we're not grieving. Um, right, but the but the, <laughs> the the promise of the resurrection is actually more powerful than that. One hundred percent. And this again is where the symbol comes in for me, as I was talking about earlier with the two kingdoms. Is on the one hand, I sit there and say to myself, uh, are you broken? Like, can you not mourn like a normal human being? Mm. But then at the same time, I thank and praise God that he gives me the strength to not fall apart and to, as you point out, cling not only to the resurrection, but the power of baptism that mm, yeah. brings brings to bear the power of Jesus' resurrection to us in that moment. So that it's not I'm uncaring, I'm detached, and I'm removed from the situation, but it's both. I am, because I have to be, as you pointed out, it's once again, returning to um, conversations with guys who lead squads or platoons mm -hmm. in combat. Right. Right. If you yell or you're panicked, 
or you lose control, everyone can die because they're following your lead. Right. So if you as a leader fall apart, the the organization and the discipline of the, the team is going to fall apart, especially if someone's not going to step up and take leadership from you in that moment. And for myself as a pastor, especially at a funeral, for someone who is much beloved in the community and has a large family and everyone is, especially when they die suddenly or tragically, everyone's staring up at you, standing before the altar, waiting to see, all right, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? How are you going to behave in this situation? And, you know, analogically speaking, it is a minefield interpersonally and professionally. Because if you're glib or you make jokes, yeah. people are going to wonder what what is wrong with you. On the other hand, if you just break down and start heave crying mm-hmm. at the pulpit so that you can't even get through the sermon, now people are saying, oh, how wonderful he cared about her so much, but you don't preach the gospel. Yeah, Because right. you're in case. Um, I mean, it is. And I think, again, the only the, the teacher there is the Holy Spirit in the school of experience, as Dr. Luther says, that the Holy Spirit makes you a theologian. In yeah. those moments, I, I think I think Neil is importing this idea um, of yes. symbol of the of the world's redemption um, because you know I mean they they have crosses all over the place right mm-hmm. and so he's drawing your attention to to the icon they have basically right that image. that's a good way to put it there we go an icon yes yeah uh, you know and point to that and say that's what we're really talking about but that's mm-hmm. that's only a sign of what actually happened at Calvary okay fair enough right sure right right and uh, you know. We're not just auditory people; we're we're visual learners. Right, so right. it's appropriate to have imagery in our work and and, and right. to paint the picture. Uh, the original mm. text said, "Sweetest wood and sweetest iron, sweetest weight is hung on thee." So that's uh, better. Yeah, I think so. I like that better. <laughs> that makes sense. Theologically, it makes better sense too. Scripturally, it makes better sense. And in the yeah, it's real. It's real. We've talked about foliage and blossom and fruit, and now we have wood and right. iron. It's like, no, this is an actual event that happened real place yeah. in time on real wood. Makes it much real, more visceral. Real nails. Well, that's the other thing, yeah. too. Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah, I like that. Powerful poetry. All right, last stanza. Stanza five. Unto God be praise and glory, to the Father and the Son, to the eternal spirit, honor, now and evermore be done. Praise and glory in the highest, while the timeless ages run mm-hmm. a common feature of latin hymns is to end with a doxology, doxology a song of praise to the holy trinity excuse me that what do you, what is beyond the cross what is behind the cross uh doxology that's it mm-hmm. don't don't go past the cross don't try and go around it don't try and see what's beyond it no there is the cross that is the that the fullness of the image of god that is the be all end all of everything that god wants you to know about him one step beyond that's heresy. Yeah. So doxology or heresy, those are your two options. When This is what Paul does constantly in his letters. When he gets to Christ and especially predestination and election, he's reached his end and therefore he doxologizes because what else can you do at that point? Right. That's a, really the only response to the mystery, right? Yes, absolutely. It's to thank God for it. <laughs> right, right. It's like, but I want to read the last chapter. Well, you know the ending of the book, yeah. even though you haven't gotten to the last chapter yet. So just thank God as the author that he did, He said, hey, here's the ending. Well, and I, I think the reason why this hymn is in particular, I don't know, it's been challenging for me to introduce, uh, maybe somewhat because of the tune. It's a new tune from Carl Schultz. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think really it has to do with that tendency we have to move past the cross, I think. Yes, right? absolutely. It's like, Pastor Hester, we hear what you're saying. We know it's Holy Week. Can we right. get to the resurrection already? 
Right. You know, can we get Every to Easter? Every week, Jesus and baptism, Jesus and the Lord's Supper, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And Jesus crucified for the sins of the world. Right. right. Jesus What else dead, is there? Dying. What else you got? Yeah. Right. Uh, back you, to your other point about, about uh, death being banal, uh, I think then what's really offensive is that, that God would die such a banal death, right? Yes. Abandoned, Absolutely. alone, forsaken. Um, Especially the way that Isaiah it, describes it. Mm. Yeah. Not only is it banal, but we don't even really, we, we care so little, we turn our face away. <laughs> like, oh yeah, it's another guy crucified. Which remember, at that time, crucifixion, pretty normal. Romans love to crucify people, to set an example. Yeah, yeah, like in uh, Life of Brian, right? The streets are lined. Yes, exactly. When, during the revolt of Spartacus, hmm. hundreds, thousands of people were crucified on the roads into and out of Rome. You mean the movies, right? No, but but that part's true. That, <laughs> that part they get right. Yeah. The rest of it historically is a, no, it's a dumpster fire, but they get that part right. But no, it's it's... Everything about his death is unremarkable because he's in some backwater country that no one cares about mm -hmm. at the edge of the Roman Empire, a disgraced governor who's essentially exiled from Rome for a failed coup. Mm -hmm. He was on the wrong side of history on that one. And the religious leaders are these kind of toothless bureaucrats parading around as if they're clergy. Mm -hmm. The people are children, as is the case, they're sheep. And his disciples are essentially dumb for the most part, they don't they don't ever get it. And then he dies. And the only thing remarkable about his death is that uh, well, yes, there's earthquake and <laughs> right and, at the, yeah, there is that darkness. Off point. Well, but the the sign above above the cross, you know? Right. Jesus right. of Nazareth, this is the king, king of the, of the Jews. Jews. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I that's, mean it's, that's the only thing that would mark that as being that cross as being anything different than the, yeah, the two right. crosses next to him, right? Right. Yeah, I'm sure there weren't a lot of people who claimed to be the king of the Jews being crucified in those days. <laughs> Lots of messiahs crucified. Yeah, every other guy that started a revolution in Israel claimed to be the messiah. <laughs> but it was, it was wishful thinking, hopeful, <laughs> right? And maybe that ultimately is why we old Adam sinners get so tired and bored with the cross of Christ mm -hmm. is that, as I was pointing out at the beginning, we really want a buff bro Jesus to rip his rip himself off the cross and come down and kick the Romans out and crush his enemies underfoot. Kind of, we want Conan, essentially. Mm -hmm. We want kind of Conan the Barbarian to be our king. The only problem with wanting a guy like Conan the Barbarian to be king is it's great when he's beaten up other people that we don't like. But so when he turns his attention to us, that all of a sudden we're saying, well, wait a minute, I thought we were buddies. I thought you were on my side. Yeah. Which is why we run away from the God, quote unquote, God of the Old Testament is he seems kind of a brutal, savage, bloodthirsty kind of God who opens up the earth and swallows people when they rebel versus mm -hmm. the cool hippie God who just wants everybody to be cool with each other and hang out, uh, the God of New Testament. Yeah. Uh, kind of. <laughs> kind of. Exactly. Until you actually read the text. Right. But- the point being, Jesus is the God of, well, the heavens and the earth. He is the God of all scripture, not just parts of it. Right. And then he the cross the being the most scandalous is that, is that it, uh, he turns it all upside down and yes. he suffers the abuse, right? Right. He becomes the lamb. Um, right. He, he really embraces death, right? He does. And for all intents and purposes, the world keeps on spinning as it always has before, during, and after his death. To the world at large, nothing's changed other than we have one more famous person to put in the history books. 
Yeah, I mean, it takes Peter at Pentecost actually saying, yeah, you remember all that stuff, you know, that was 50 yes, days ago? right, right. Uh, this is what it meant. I mean, so right. they remembered it, of course. It was right. pretty traumatic stuff. But Even in his letter, right? Even in his letter, he has to bring up the transfiguration moment. Yeah, this is not a cleverly devised myth, right? Right, like they, they're 100% saying, oh, you guys made that up, right? I mean, that's, that's not true. I mean, mm-hmm. that couldn't possibly be true. And he's like, no, we were there. It actually happened. And uh, yeah, I, I even included the part where I said we should have a camp out. That, that was on me. <laughs> which uh, uh, which does lend, maybe in a soft kind of way, lend some authenticity to the text, right? Because you don't usually, you know, in your, in your biography, you know, or, or a biography of somebody else, you don't paint yourself um, in a negative way. <laughs> exactly. Uh, here I am, the moron, again. Right. Uh, well, that's the beauty of John's gospel is he is actually painting Peter as the moron all the time. <laughs> parenthetically uh, but nonetheless uh that's that's sing my tongue the glorious battle and uh yeah that's where it's led us today in our conversation mm-hmm. that left and right-handed kinds of power right and left-handed kingdoms prayer piety piety in general but uh check it out him 454 sing my tongue the glorious battle by venatius honorius fortunatus updated by John Mason Neal. You can find the biography of uh, Neal both in the old Lutheran hymnal, hymnal companion, mm-hmm. and also online at, what's it called? Hymnary? Hymnary. Yeah, or I'll link it up. And, okay, good. And Hymnary has links to all of his either uh, hymns that he authored or that he translated. So, good. Yeah. It's, and, and go it's check less... out the um, CD. Yeah. Yeah, you can uh, listen to it. You can buy it. Uh, it's streaming. It's on all, all streaming platforms. There you go. Glory be to Jesus. Good look for it. Love it. So that's it for us this week. Come back next week for the fourth and possibly final episode, which I'm assuming is going to be A Mighty Fortress is Our God, because what's more Lutheran than the battle hymn of the Reformation? (laughs) (laughs) Or we could do Dear Christians One and All Rejoice, too, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. That was Luther's first hymn, and it has to do with martyrdom. So Mm. we'll let it be a surprise. Okay. But it'll definitely be one of Luther's hymns, and uh, which found its way into the 1524 hymnal, I do believe. So thank you again for all your support for the podcast. Please go to the website and check out all of Higher Things content. Also check out our YouTube channel and the vlogs by Pastor Goodman and Earhart and Vandercook, Pastor Borgart's uh, Higher Things video shorts that he used to do. Everything that you see up there, please go rate it. Go give it a thumbs up. If you think we deserve it, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And uh, as always, we love you and we really appreciate this. So we'll see you next time. Peace.